Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. We're discussing an absolute return fund today from Rafa, whose managers tell us how they managed to produce positive returns in 2022 during a difficult market. They also explain the correlation between equity and bonds and how they're positioned going into the new year. I'm Stacey West, and today we're joined by Ian Reese and Duncan McCannis, managers of the Elite Radar LL Ruffer Diversified Return Fund. Thank you both for joining us today. Hi, good afternoon, Stacey, and thank you very much for having us. Now, the fund came into its own in 2022 and managed positive returns in a very difficult environment. So maybe talk us through what worked for you. Sure. And, and you know, as you say, 2022 was a very difficult period for for investors, and primarily that was because you know all conventional, or, you know, many of the conventional uh, assets which portfolios rely upon, namely bonds and equities, fell during uh, during the year. We had anticipated quite a rocky period for financial markets ever since signs that you know rising inflation was likely to be more persistent than the market had feared. So we had. You know, increase what we call uh, unconventional protections in the portfolio. I'll separate those in, in two strands. First of all, we hedged the interest rate risk in the portfolio. That might sound somewhat you know, technical, but essentially it allowed us to not sell our inflation-linked bonds, which we think are a core longer-term holding. But by hedging out the exposure to, to rising nominal yields, we were able to weather what was a very challenging period for, for fixed income much better. Elsewhere in the portfolio, we had protection against uh, declining equity markets. So think of, think of such examples as put options on um, stock market indices and the like. And we also had protection against a widening in corporate bond spreads. I think of this as, as the perceived riskiness of, of corporate bonds rising, the appreciated in value. So those are the assets which appreciated over the year. We maintained a relatively defensive position throughout. We finished the year with our lowest ever equity weighting. So we we were pretty conservatively positioned. But those equities that we did hold contributed positively during the year. So it it depends which market you look to for your reference performance. But it was not an easy period for returns. And we are pleased that actually we were able to contribute positive uh, returns in an asset class, which had a very, very difficult period. And then how active were you in that period to to manage the positive returns, considering we had a significant number of um, large events happening that moved markets in the past 12 months? Were you particularly active during that period? Yeah, so I mean, we are an active uh, manager, you know, we, if you look throughout our history, we are not afraid or haven't been afraid to make large, um, you know, moves to the portfolio over, over short periods of time. And, and 2022 is no different and perhaps more special because there were, as you say, quite a lot of things going on in, in, a, in a short, um, space of time. More gradually throughout 2022. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we had been reducing our equity exposure. So it had been, let's call it 40% at the start of the year. It, we closed the year at 12.5%. So that was a, you know, a broad running sort of, you know, downward um, sort of, you know, equity weighting uh, reduction throughout. The more, if you like, um, you know, exciting uh, you know, shifts in the portfolio that we've been doing, namely around the, 
trying to think of the right way to describe it, the debacle in the UK bond market towards the end of September and, and early October. We were purchasing um, yeah, relatively small amounts, but still potent uh, sizes of long-dated index-linked gilts, which, yeah, if you caught the bottom, you know, comfortably more than doubled in a, in a short period of time. That was a trade. I think I think Ian's being too modest there. <laughs> <laughs> um, as uh, maybe that's the difference between the two of us. Um, yeah. So so we we, we did, as as he said we we were adding to inflation linked bonds at the very end of September uh, in the in the middle of the the debacle of the trust courting budget. Um, we did actually have an order on for a lot more um, on on the I think it was the 29th of September. Uh, we were trying to buy a quite big position. Uh, that morning, and that that was um, uh, the Wednesday morning, I think, after the gilts had fallen 20-odd percent on the Monday, 20-odd percent on the Tuesday, and then they were down 15% on the Wednesday morning when we were trying to buy them. Um, And one broker said that we were the only uh, active buyer of UK duration in the world on that that morning. But unfortunately, they, they weren't that liquid, and the market really dried up in the hours before the Bank of England intervened. And so we did get uh, a couple of percent into the portfolio, but we would have we would have wanted to get more um, if only someone would have sold them to us. Sorry, Ian, uh, yeah. ca- carry on. No, no, um, modesty. No, um, more broadly, if you like, that was quite a UK centric view, yeah, an asset class that, which we already held, and we're taking advantage, if you like, of a disorderly market. What we did do outside of the UK and in the form of the UK, uh, sorry, the US bond market. We added to long-dated exposure, both in tips and, and conventional bonds in the US. And if I focus on the on the tips, which are for people who aren't familiar, are, are inflationary bonds, inflationary treasuries. Their real yield was ap- approaching almost positive two percent. We felt that was a you know, very attractive starting point, if you like. Um, and looking around the world at that point in time, your equities were down. Let's call it twenty percent. Your bonds were down a similar amount, you know, sort of round numbers. And we felt that the relative attraction over adding duration through bonds was more attractive than adding to equities at that point in time, given the concerns that we have and still carry over the you know the future path of the, the US and global economy. So those were two of the bigger ones. We also added a bit to to gold at a very similar time, which again, you can think of as a, a very long duration asset. And just before the, the turn of the year and and and, uh, and now something we're, we're considering and uh, adding to is we've in, uh, introduced exposure to oil through a sort of exchange traded contract, which co- complements, I would say, the existing energy exposure that we have to energy equities such as BP with more of a direct play on the, on the commodity. There's been much talk of a new environment of higher inflation, et cetera. And while this fund and the strategy don't quite go back as far as the 1970s, when we had a similar economic environment, you do actually look back over the last 100 years of data to to model certain scenarios. So how has this helped you understand how the fund might perform and what assets to invest in today? So first to sort of set the stage as to what we mean when we talk about investors being in a new environment or a new regime, because that's that's quite important. Basically, our view is that the world enjoyed 40 years of one particular economic order from 1980 to 2020, where 
globalization brought cheap goods, cheap energy, cheap labor, and cheap capital. Uh, and to say that that was an understatement or a tailwind for um, multinational corporations and asset prices is a huge understatement. It was enormously beneficial. But that particular global order seems to have ended in our eyes. And the new global order is defined by great powers in strategic competition, you know, thinking about Cold War II, China versus the US and so on, and the primacy of stakeholders over shareholders. So that all boils down to a decade um, looking forward where we see uh, 3 to 4% average inflation, um, not the 2% or less that we've been used to in recent years. And that comes with more inflation volatility, more economic growth volatility, and therefore more market volatility. So that, that's what we mean when we're saying it's a completely different uh, regime. But back to your question, we've been we've been around since 1994. So we've got sort of 28 years worth of, uh, of performance, battle testing and history. But from Bloomberg, a variety of other data sources and sort of proprietary analysis, we, we also have about 100 years worth of data uh, for the full range of, of asset classes that, that we can invest in. And what we use this for is sort of stress testing the portfolio or as a, a jumping off point for discussion on the risks that we're taking. But what our work showed is that in inflationary periods, so when inflation is above 3%, stocks and bonds are positively, not negatively correlated. And that was really the key insight that allowed us to navigate the last couple of years and to avoid the bond bear market. When inflation is above 3 stocks and bonds move in the same direction. They don't have that offsetting characteristic uh, that most people see because most people look at 20 or 30 years of data. And in that time, stocks and bonds have almost always been negatively correlated, which has created this amazing effect that held up balanced portfolios for so long until inflation returned. Because really, that 20 or 30 years was only looking at one particular type of economic regime, and it resulted in investors being blindsided. And you had last year, which was this failure of diversification, where cross-asset correlations were surprising to most people anyway, or surprisingly high to most people. And that correlation that you just mentioned is one thing that kind of surprised investors in 2022 was that the asset classes, as you mentioned, moved together and they became more correlated than you would typically expect. Uh, so just moving forward from that, do you think that this will change in 2023? And have you managed to find any uncorrelated assets? Well, the, the, uh, will it change in 2023 is the, the trillion dollar question. I think it won't be quite as stark and as painful as last year. But I think it does continue to be an enduring problem for investors. So when we spoke a year ago, uh, the presentations that we were giving at the time were called Remind Me Why You Own Bonds. But, but now that we have higher interest rates, I think there are going to be moments, as Ian has hinted at, where duration and bonds become attractive again, but probably not uh, as long-term holds. We do think that investors need to rethink the way that they build their portfolios, their portfolio construction, because assets move differently in relation to each other in an inflationary environment than in a low inflation environment. So what does that mean in practice? We think that like we have in the last couple of years, investors have to be much more active, much more nimble going forward. Buy and hold does not work. That was a strategy for the old regime. 
we keep saying to people that investing for inflation volatility and investing for inflation are not the same thing. And please don't mix them up. And that was the lesson of 2022 as well, to some degree. Sometimes you need to pay for protection. And this is where we've found uncorrelated assets is in our unconventional assets. So interest rate hedges that Ian mentioned, equity puts, credit protection. These were the key drivers in performance last year, but also over the last couple of years. And the willingness to use them and the ability to use them is probably the main differentiator between us and much of the rest of the market. Cash, we think, is an important uh, asset. Uh, at times, it's it's king. It's very uncomfortable to hold cash uh, in, in an inflationary environment, but actually, it's often essential because it allows you to move very quickly and respond to opportunities like the uh, inflation-linked guilt sell-off in late September that we just talked about. Lastly, as a principle, uh, to sort of a foundational principle to, to build your thinking on, we think that portfolios will need to be focused on being resilient rather than optimized. And we've spent several decades as an industry iterating towards ever more optimized portfolios. But actually, I think that's probably uh, not a good idea in such uncertain times as we face in coming years. And then just finally, uh, maybe a little bit about how the fund is positioned today for that resiliency that you mentioned. So where are you finding the opportunities today? Sure. So, I mean, at a big picture level, we would say the portfolio is robustly positioned. Our equity weighting still remains at the, at the lower end of our historic uh, weighting. And, and also alongside a low equity exposure, we have some protection should equity markets fall. So we're not um, trying to take a lot of risk in an equity market recovery. We see better opportunities instead of owning equities in, in, in other asset classes. We mentioned the recent purchase of, of fixed income and, and also oil, if you like. So if, for example, China's uh, re-entry into, into the glo uh, global economy after, after two or three years of, of lockdown, has a powerful effect on, on demand and economic growth. We think that you know oil and, and other commodities are, are primed to benefit. So we do think there are there are attractions there. I mentioned the fixed income. You know, we've gone from having our duration of the bond portfolio fully hedged to now one of four years. So should yields fall, you know, there are returns to be made there. And I, I think that the the overarching picture that we see is one of a world where there's much greater dispersion across your know, economic indicators around the world. So you know, the, the path for, for growth and inflation in the US is likely to be quite different to Europe and, and China and, and et cetera. And, and why I highlight that, and, and I go back to what Duncan said about cash giving the opportunity to be nimble and opportunistic, we do think there will be opportunities. We invest in, in liquid assets. You know, we can move the portfolio quickly. And we do expect there to be, you know, as Duncan said, yeah, a period of higher volatility. That can sound bad, but it also does present opportunities and sort of waiting and ready to deploy cash when we feel that you know, prices are sufficiently attractive in our, in our favor. Ian, Duncan, thank you very much for making time to talk to us today. That was very interesting and lovely to have an update from you both on the fund and your views for the next 12 months looking forward. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you. The LF Rufford Diversified Return Fund is an absolute return vehicle which has the protection of investor capital at the heart of its process.
It fits the mold of what an absolute return fund should look to do. Protect investor assets first and then grow the value of the fund whilst retaining that focus on capital preservation in all market conditions, just as the managers have explained and demonstrated. To learn more about the LF Rufford Diversified Return Fund, visit fundcaliber.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm-hmm.